Welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. We are going to be debunking myths today uh, about the Crusades. Yeah, we're going to share with you the real history of the Crusades, the important figures of the Crusades, uh, all nine Crusades and the causes behind them, and things that you never knew about one of the most important events in human history. So from the battle cry of the First Crusade, Deus Volt! Great, man. Well, let's jump right in. I, I'm really excited about our guest today, Stephen Weidenkopf. Uh, met met you, gosh, almost more than seven Long or eight. Long time ago. Yeah. 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 And uh, I was doing this uh, thing at my parish where we were studying this epic. It's the, the salvation history, right? And I love history. And so I learned so much from this guy and his uh, program, and I'm super excited to have you on. Just a little bit about Steve, uh, Steve Weidenkopf. He's an adjunct professor uh, at Christendom College, uh, the graduate <laughs> school. That I, it's an adjunct. <laughs> adjunct, but he's adjunct. 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 It's, like that. That. it's cool. history, yeah. not English. Like so we'll, let it go. we'll let it slide. <laughs> oh my gosh. Adjunct. Sorry. Yeah, just. Yeah. <laughs> Teaches church history. <laughs> <laughs> so let me try this. He's a professor at Christendom, he teaches church history. Uh, you're the author of a handful of books. Um, History of the Catholic Church, which uh, we actually yep. have right here. Mm -hmm. um, we have uh, the real history, uh, the real story of Catholic history, answering twenty centuries of anti-Catholic myths. We have the glory of the Crusades, which that's going to be relevant today. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, we, you have a book on the Reformation. Mm -hmm. uh, you've done things, tracks for Catholic answers, uh, twenty answers uh, series booklets. A lot of, uh, I mean, just a lot. I mean, you write very, a lot. I do. Yeah, you I spend a lot, a lot of time writing. Yeah. yeah, it's either that or hockey with the kids. One yeah. Of the two, so yeah. How do you find balance between that? Um, well, you know, the hours between midnight and 6 a.m. are underutilized. Uh, yeah. I hear that. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like you, Sheil. I'm really looking forward to this because I truly yeah. get a sense that that Latin phrase, Deus Volt, which means God wills it. God does will for us to uncover history so that we can stand on the shoulders of giants and really continue to build out the kingdom here on earth. So we welcome you to the show. And speaking of God's will, Deus Volt, the will of God is that you would continue to support us by we going We presume. To, we don't know. We, we presume. don't presume? Okay, we can't, we can't say we that don't, with confidence. We can't confidently say we know God's will. We can only presume and try to unify He's ourselves. He's trying to get him to subscribe is, to the show. I'm trying to get them to subscribe here. Okay, it's not a hit. Okay. And what cost? Were you going to hit the heresy button? <laughs> I would rather souls. have less Patreons and have a more <laughs> theologically pure talk show. Well, what is God's will? Love and mercy itself, as it says. There you go. And generosity. And generosity. So you can be generous by going to patreon.com forward slash the Catholic talk show. You're going to support us to continue to have awesome guests like Steve yeah. is going to share some brilliant insights with us today and many more shows to come with your support and your generosity. Be sure to be going to catholictalkshow.com to make sure that you can find us in any way listening in or viewing on YouTube. We want you to participate in this great effort. So where are we, yeah. where are we going from here? Shoot. Well, I mean, with the support of our patrons, we were able to fly out a professor of church history 
who's also a member of the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem. Correct? Yes, wow. that's right. Do you want to explain awesome. a little bit about what that is to people? Yeah, so the Knights of the uh, the Holy Sepulchre, we're uh, an organization that's affiliated with the church. Uh, primarily, it's uh, it's one of the, actually the history can be traced all the way back to the end of the First Crusade, where the initial mm-hmm. knights who guarded the compound of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem um, but from that military um, organization stemmed a charitable organization. So the Knights today, we primarily are a charitable organization focused on maintaining a Christian presence in the Holy Land, uh, specifically in the city of Jerusalem itself. And we do some charitable works out in other communities outside the uh, Christian communities around th- that area. So oh, is, yeah. it, is there a religious context to that? Meaning, mm-hmm. meaning, are there priests that are involved? Is it like a, mm-hmm. you know, prelature? Is it, you know, how it's is not it a prelature, organized? but it's an, it's an, it's an organization recognized, a religious order organized, recognized oh, okay. by the church, mostly lay members, um, okay. but priests uh, can be members as well. It's a thousand um, year old, um, order. Order. Yeah. order. Is, yeah. it, yeah, is cool. it invite only? How, how do you get associated? Yes. It's invitation. You have a knight, uh, in the order rec- uh, recommends you, nominates you, <clears> and then you go through a process. <laughs> your bishop, <laughs> your bishop, <laughs> bishop no, has no. to approve and <laughs> oh, all okay. that kind of stuff. So you have to live a holy Catholic life. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> for uh, life. I yeah. think that just took you out of uh, the running. <laughs> oh, well, this is a Catholic talk show. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, very cool. We're really, uh, really yeah. pleased to have you here. Uh, and I think you're going to be able to uh, talk to some of the history of the Crusades and debunk some of the myths that so many people have about the Crusades. I think in the modern understanding, the Crusades are this completely unjustifiable, totally contrary to the modern sensibility of religion being involved in wars and mm-hmm. and uh, an oppressive nature of the church. And it's a money grab or it's it's uh, anti-Muslim, all these things that are so now um, really frowned upon and associated with the Crusades. Those are myths. And I think with your help, we can start to debunk some of those. Yeah, I hope so. I'm very mm-hmm. glad to be here. So thanks for inviting mm-hmm. me. So why don't you give us a little context for the Crusades and what really kicked off the Crusades? Why did the Crusades become a thing? And mm-hmm. what were some of the uh, the events that led up to Pope Urban II calling for that first crusade at Claremont? Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, the origins of the Crusades, really, you can kind of trace them all the way back to the beginnings of Islam, right? In the 7th century, when you have Muhammad um, as the prophets in the Arabian Peninsula, he tries to unify the various Arabian tribes around the peninsula. Um, and he does so by creating a community of believers, right? That uh, he preached that there was only one God, contrary to what the Arabs believed at the time. They were a multitude of tribes. They believed in a pantheon of gods. He centered on one God, Allah, said that he was the prophet of that one God. Uh, and then he created a community. So everybody who believed that was what he called the Ummah or the community of believers. And then Muhammad had a vision of the world where he really divided the world into two camps. There was the house of Islam, Right, everyone who believed in members of the Ummah, and then everyone in the House of War was everybody else. And so it was the job of those in the House of Islam to bring those in the House of War into the House of Islam um, by violent struggle through jihad. And so after he died in 632, his followers over the next hundred years went out and conquered most of the ancient Christian territories in North Africa and the Holy Land and even attacked parts of the Byzantine Empire. Um, so it went into Spain and things like that as well. So Christendom was really under attack from the 7th through the 8th centuries. Um, And then you kind of fast forward a few centuries into the 11th century, things really change when a new group of people, uh, they're called the Seljuk Turks, they come down from the Asian steppe, 
Uh, they had been converted to Islam, so they're Muslim, but they're not Arabs. They're a different ethnic group. But they come into what is the uh, what was the, the Byzantine province of Anatolia at the time, which is modern-day Turkey. Uh, and they fight a big battle against the Byzantines in 1071 called the Battle of Manzikert. And they defeat this Byzantine army. Uh, they capture the emperor of the time, actually, himself, Romanus IV. And, uh, you know, this causes significant problems with the Eastern Christian Empire of the Byzantines. Uh, they lost this great territory known as Anatolia, which was a seat of most of their recruitment of their army. Uh, it was a wealthy province. And so the, the later Byzantine emperor, Alexius the Comnemnus, decides to ask for Western military help. So he sends emissaries and letters to the one ruler in the West he thought could help him raise an army of mercenaries to assist him in, in recapturing this, this territory, and that was the Pope. Now this mm. is, But this is also roughly about 50 years after the Great Schism. Right. So in the context of the time, uh, the church had went through this schism where the East and West had separated, and when Pope Urban II gets this letter from uh, Alexios saying we need help, the Pope looks at this and says, this is a real opportunity to try to reforge Christian unity. And of course, we're going to help our brothers, but we're also going to then uh, bolster, I guess, the position of, of the Western power in, in the uh, context of the greater Mediterranean society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and interestingly enough, I mean, so he, he knew that, but he also knew, following on that, that it would be difficult to motivate Western warriors to travel you know, thousands of miles away from their home risking certain death to help the Byzantines, help schismatics in mm -hmm. essence. So if you were the, a potential crusader, what would pull you and motivate you from living a comfortable life in the mountains to becoming a crusader? I think it's the same same thing, you know, that motivates people to, to join the army mm -hmm. or the mm -hmm. police force. It's, uh, it's that, you know, it's the laying down of one's life or the other, mm -hmm. and it's to do it in a way that... You recognize injustice, you recognize, you know, a need and, and you decide to just take that jump. Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that's what's most noble. And especially in relationship to the the East and the West, the efforts of promoting that Ut Unum Sent, the sense that we are called to be one. And that requires action. That requires, you know, a, a true effort. And we think of national unity and, and, and our national pride as Americans and how we pray for the military and how we pray for our people in public service as well, you know, promoting that greater unity and justice. And I think that's a, that's a really good and noble uh, sense of what would motivate you to be a crusader. But I'm sure there were other incentives that probably, uh, you know, attributed to, yeah. to now, motivating. In, right. in what I've read, and correct me if I'm wrong, I would say that the... The Pearl Harbor of the Crusades would have been the destruction of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre by the Mad Caliph. And right. but what? The 10, 10, 10 09. Right. Mm -hmm. um, That's in Jerusalem. The one yeah. in Jerusalem. Yeah. Right. So yeah. the context of that is that um, the Holy Sepulchre, pilgrims are going there um, constantly. It's the holiest site in all of Christianity. And it was a required pilgrimage for, mm -hmm. for one's life. And what happened that led up to the, uh, the Caliph uh, al-Hakim mm -hmm. destroying that? Well, many different things. I mean, al-Hakim was the Egyptian Caliph, and he had some there's different stories of him. There's some stories that, that uh, whether you believe them or not, that maybe his mother was a Christian, and so he kind of reacted in a very violent way against Christians and Jews living in his territories. Uh, to I don't hide care what you aspect. say, Mom. I'm not going to be Christian. I'm going to burn everything down. Just right. a real snotty kid. <laughs> 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 I'm fine. 
So he really was not a good guy. Yeah, that's. Uh, remember, he's covering up some some childhood issues or other things, but uh, <laughs> or he was really a true believer in Islam. We're when speculating. Right now. We're speculating. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, he ordered the destruction of the Holy. And actually, the Muslims at the time referred to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as the Church of the Dung Heap. That was the if you translate the name in Arabic, that was how they referred to it. Mm. Uh, so they didn't see this obviously as a holy place, although it was very holy, as we mm -hmm. as you mentioned to Christians. So yeah, when news of that got back to the West, it was significant. I mean, it was it was devastating uh, news. Uh, you know, the French in particular had a great devotion to the city of Jerusalem and to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre itself. There were copies of the church, um, you know, in France. So the French would make churches modeled after the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Uh, they would even name their daughters after the Holy City. So if you were to go back in time to a French nobleman's court, you know, in the 11th century, if he had more than one daughter, chances are one of them would have been named Jerusalem. They had such mm. devotion to the city. Yeah. Mm. Good name. Mm. Yeah. So that's clearly yes. a motivator, you know, mm -hmm. in, in relationship, like you mentioned, correlating Pearl Harbor mm -hmm. or, you know, the World Trade Center experience. That, that almost evokes a, an immediate response to this is a violation. This is something that we need to, need to correct. We yeah, need to, we need to respond. The, the main or whatever. That's the... The the light on the powder keg. Now, I think the context of of the Islamic conquest of Byzantine areas and the former areas of the Roman Empire uh, were the kindling of that. But this, I think, to in my mind, is the thing that really set it off. That this is an untenable situation, um, and something needs to be done. Something needs to be done. Right? Yeah, it was a shock, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have you have over time, and it happened in the early 11th century, and so things kind of quiet down after Al Hakim gets out of the picture and. Um, and so pilgrims were able to go back to Jerusalem and, and the church is actually rebuilt in the middle of the 11th century and then added on later when the, when the crusaders get into Jerusalem. But, uh, yeah, it definitely kind of brings that shock, brought that mm -hmm. shock to Western Christendom. And then, then it's the arrival of the Seljuks I mentioned earlier that really then kind of kickstarts, uh, the actual campaigns and the motive and the moving of peoples and warriors mm -hmm. to the East. So what what were a number of the other motivating uh, elements to drawing together this this crusade and getting it off the ground? And, and also, like, how were the crusaders formed? Because, yeah. like, were they are all always around? How did that? you know, mm -hmm. become something. Yeah, that, this is fascinating. You know, where, where was the leadership yeah. uh, mm -hmm. that came? Yeah, so in terms of motivations, right, mm -hmm. we'll talk about that one first, Father. It's, it's uh, you know, there are multiple motivations. I mean, I like to, to kind of, though, you can encapsulate them all into just one word, love. Mm -hmm. uh, and really, that's it sounds kind of trite, but I think it's true when you study the sources that these warriors really had a deep sense of love for the church, for Christendom. The Pope, as you mentioned, Urban II, calls for the First Crusade of the Council of Clermont. He motivates these warriors or calls them to do it. So out of love for Christ and the church, they want to respond. This is an age of faith. Um, people, you know, are, are want to go on pilgrimages and to do things like of this nature. And the crusade is an armed pilgrimage. Uh, they're motivated by love of their neighbors. They're hearing reports of Christians, uh, indigenous Christians, as well as pilgrims who are being killed on the way to Jerusalem or in Jerusalem by the Seljuks and others. Uh, and then love for themselves. So one of the major um, motivators or, or privileges, really, that Urban gives the Crusaders is the granting of a plenary indulgence. And so now, there's, there's a, a spiritual of, motivation for that. But there's a lot of myths around that indulgence and a lot of myths around the motivations. Mm -hmm. uh, some would say that it was a, a land grab by the West sure. or it was mm -hmm. motivated by economic gain, mm -hmm. uh, whether to gain the riches of the East, of mm -hmm. the Byzantines, or of the Holy Land. Sure. 
Uh, can you speak a little bit to debunking some of the motivational myths? Yeah. yeah. So I know one of the major motivational bits, myths you touched on was greed, right? That, uh, and this kind of falls out of the feudal system in Europe. So you have at the time, you know, land is wealth and you have this relationship between lord and vassals. Uh, and so there's this theory that had been taught for years. I mean, I learned it as an undergrad that uh, you have these second, third, and fourth-born sons who are being born in, in Europe. There's a great population explosion in 11th century, which is all true. Um, but then because of primogeniture, that, that the, all of the land of one family gets inherited by the eldest son, that the second, third, and fourth-born sons don't have any land or wealth. So the church—and they're fighting each other. So the church marshals them and sends them overseas to capture this territory in the east from the Muslims, and that's how they can get their wealth. Sounds logical on the surface, yeah. except when you begin to pull through the, the documents and look at why they actually left and why they said that they left and who left— you find that it wasn't the second, third, and fourth-born sons who actually went on crusade. It was the first-born sons mm. who went on the first crusade. So the what, ones who stood the most to lose yeah. went. What kind of sources are you? I mean, or, or, was there a collection of things? Because I mean, they might have mm -hmm. taught you this, and then something comes out, and mm -hmm. you know, you yeah. can redact it, and it sure. just never got redacted, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a great British historian. He sadly, he died a few years ago now. Jonathan Riley Smith, who was it was a medievalist who focused on the crusades, and what he did. Uh, back in the 80s, 90s, he looked at medieval charters. Uh, and charters are basically like our real estate transaction, like deeds and titles and things like that that we do today. So if you sell a piece of property in the Middle, Age, in Middle Ages, uh, you would write up a charter, right? You would say, I'm selling this orchard to this monastery. And then usually in those charters, you would give a reason why. And so historians had known of these charters for, for centuries, um, but no one really mined them for a specific period of time, you know, within France for these warriors who went on the first crusade to see why are they selling this, this, this land? Because going to war is expensive, right? We know that in our own day and age. Mm -hmm. If it's true now, it was true then. Uh, so he, Riley Smith went and looked at these charters and found that the reason why these men went on crusade was for a multitude of reasons. One was because of to, to fight and to defend the indigenous Christians and pilgrims who were being killed. Uh, because they were motivated by love for Christ and the church, they were concerned about their salvation, and they wanted to receive the indulgence from from the Pope. So it's it's from those charters that then we get a sense that it's the firstborn sons that went and why they actually went as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, I think we also mentioned, you mentioned the indulgence granted by uh, Pope Urban II, but there was no, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding that it, mm -hmm. the indulgence was, if you go and kill Muslims, you're going right to heaven, or right. if you die in battle, yes. you're going right to heaven, and that's not the case. You, you, no, yeah, that's not the case at all. I mean, it's 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 very clear. Urban, very clear in his in his granting of the indulgence, says that it's for those those who can receive it go for worthy and honorable reasons, right? For proper cause, you can't go thinking that you're going to go get you know wealth or money or riches or land. Um, you can't go with this murderous intent in your heart and then still receive that indulgence. So there's. Crusade armies were, were, were different. That kind of comes to your question, Ryan, earlier about, you know, they were different than just regular medieval armies. These were not armies that were formed to attack a castle or get land from other peoples, for other Christians. These were seen as penitential and spiritual enterprises and as campaigns. Hence the whole name etymologically of crusade, crusader, crusada, you know, the sense of, uh, you know, being marked and mm -hmm. literally marked by the cross. Exactly. And I think the, the bold underlined statement that you made before, these are first born sons who have the most to lose mm -hmm. that they are laying down everything for the sake of this 
crusada, the this right. this commissioning of the cross and the sacrifice for rebirth of of Jerusalem and and how healthy. Many, how yeah. many guys were? I mean, like, what, what's the what's the number? Yeah, yeah like how, how big was? Well, it? I, I think that's a good time to interject the yeah. fact that the Crusades. There was multiple Crusades. Yes, right. There was nine Crusades. Right. And now that first nine nine Crusades. Wow. And they start all the way from 1099, and then the last crusade would have been uh, a couple, couple years ago. In the late 13th century, 1270, yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is a 200-year period, and there's nine separate crusades, and there's you know 50-year gaps between them. Now, mm -hmm. that first crusade, and the one I think that was maybe ostensibly the most successful, was yes, the first was. crusade. Right. Um, but there's actually a crusade before that, correct? Before the first crusade? Yes. That um, was... The that would be which that would be yes. the first crusade. The people's crusade. The people's crusade. Oh well, oh. the people's crusade is kind of part is considered part of the first crusade. Right. So there's different components to the first crusade. There's the people's crusade, or, or then the prince's crusade. Some historians divided into, and the people's crusade. Right. Was was when Urban preached this in at uh, at Claremont. It. it generated, and he didn't just preach it in Clermont. He went around and, and spent the next year or so on the road wow. in France preaching where he went. Wow. So he went on like this massive papal road trip, mm -hmm. right, to, to yeah. preach the crusade. And then he sent preachers out through the rest of Christendom as well, preaching it. So you principally most of the warriors and, and people who went come from, from France, what is modern-day France, but there are crusaders from all over Christendom that are participating in this in this initial one. Uh, but there's one individual, uh, he was named, his name is Peter the Hermit. He was a very um, gregarious, charismatic type of, of individual. One of the most interesting characters yes. you can ever read about. <laughs> That's very true. Peter um, the Hermit. All kinds of stories associated with Peter, right? <laughs> Some are probably incredibly apocryphal, but still, you know, uh, he motivated a group of people to to go with him. And, and there's some misnomer in that. I mean, they, they were there were some warriors that went with him, but not very many. Most of them were, were women, children, you know, men, old men these kinds of things. Uh, he motivated the go to go to the east and they went. So that goes back to Ryan's or original question that these these are not armies as we think of armies, right? These are there's no unified command structure, there's no four star four star general who's in charge of everything, you know, I mean it's, these are individual groups, uh, large groups some of them of crusaders that are rallied around one particular nobleman. Uh, or in this case, Peter the Hermit and the People's Crusade. And they're just going generally, they're going in the same direction, generally for the same purpose, but not leaving at the same time. So the People's Crusade leaves before the official departure date, which was August 15th, 1096. Mm -hmm. uh, and they get down to, um, to Constantinople before the main army groups come. Uh, they cause some havoc for the for the uh, Byzantines, and they quickly kind of you know shuttle them across the Bosphorus and get them onto Anatolia. Uh, and it's there, They most of them run into a, um, um, near Nicaea, they run into a, a Muslim army that destroys, kills most of them. Um, so that's, and that's one of the things that people kind of use the People's Crusades and other elements of these, of the crusading movement to attack the Crusades and attack the church. You know, here you have mostly unarmed individuals who are, who are, you know, with this obedience of faith and this love for Christ, you know, going thousands of miles away from home, and then they're massacred. So what was the point? All right, that's that comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's it's always presented as like this big one-sided thing, <clears throat> you know. Um, you see that a lot, Christopher Columbus, you know, like all these people, you know, and I'm I'm reading books from actual writings from these guys, you know, unless they completely just lied about it. Mm -hmm seemed like he had genuine compassion, you know? So you look at some of this stuff and it's like, I think people just use it as a license to just kind of not mm -hmm. appreciate something, you know? Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So out of curiosity, because I think we could get a little confused about the Crusades, nine Crusades, and, and if you were to summarize and and give like the heart of the crusade for the crusade in general, mm-hmm. what would be the heart's movement of the crusade and how you would sum up, you know, all these various different crusades that were going on? Yeah. That, you, know, that's, that's, you don't think that is, but that's a loaded question yeah. in a certain yeah. sense, because that's a big debate among the historic about among the crusading historian community of how do you define a crusade? But, but generally speaking, most historians agree that, that a crusade was an armed pilgrimage mm-hmm. called by the Pope, of which voluntarily uh, Christian warriors went on campaign for a specific purpose to which spiritual privileges were attached. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of just a nice kind of concise yeah. definition. So, but mm-hmm. the movement lasts several hundred years, um, more so than just, you know, 200 years from 1096 to 1291. It, it moves on even into the 16th century and even into the 17th century, late 17th century, when an Ottoman Turkish army is at the gates of Vienna in 1683. So, uh, and there's different forms of it. Principally, these are campaigns directed against uh, Muslims who had taken over ancient Christian territory in North Africa and in the Holy Land. But there were other forms of crusading as well. There was a crusade called against heretics in the south of France, for example, the Albigensian heresy or the Cathari. Uh, there were crusades called against uh, the Baltic states of Europe today, which are Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, where there were pagan heathens at the time. Um, and there were even crusades called against enemies of the church. Uh, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II had crusade called against him because of political issues with the pope. So the movement evolves and it takes on different characteristics, but at its heart, that's what it is. It's an armed pilgrimage for a specific purpose called by the Pope. Mm. Mm. So out of the nine crusades, I think the one that's, again, we said this, probably the most successful Mm. is that first crusade. It's the one that established the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem. Mm. But leading up to that, there was a lot of aggression from the Islamic forces. Mm. And this was not every, all of a sudden the Pope wakes up and says, well, boy, it should be nice to control this land. I mean, imagine uh, half of the United States was taken over by a foreign country. What do you do? Do you say, well, they're a different religion. We shouldn't mess with that. I mean, this is a real war of aggression. Mm-hmm. And the Christian nations had been pretty passive mm-hmm. in the face of this. Um, <clears throat> but for the context, I mean, this was a complete um, sweeping over a very... of indigenous lands of traditional lands, lands that were Christians for hundreds and hundreds of years. This is not sweet, innocent, um, you know, Middle Eastern countries being taken over by aggressive white Europeans. This is very, very opposite as a matter of fact. And they, they probably killed more than just Christians too. You know, I mean, I, I, I would imagine absolutely. that it yeah. was pretty much, you know, convert or die. It's a holy war. Right. Yeah. Right. In many ways. So, I mean, there are some cases of that where, you know, Islamic forces come in and they convert it to Sori. But for the most part, what they what they do do is is when they took over this ancient Christian territory that had indigenous Christians and indigenous Jews living in them, uh, they really they, they kept the for the most part, they allowed the Christians and Jews to, to live in those areas and to, to continue to worship in the way they wanted to. But they placed severe restrictions on them um, because Muhammad had seen Christians and Jews as members of uh, of a uh, of a protected class. They were given protection under uh, the Islamic law, but Christians and Jews annually had to pay a tax. It's known as the Jizra. Uh, and this was a heavy, heavy burden that these families had to pay just to continue to live. It's kind of like extortion protection it's tax right, from the pressure. mafia. Right. Uh, and, you know, you were a second class citizen. Your, your status was barely above that of a slave. 
Um, for example, Christians and Jews could not testify in an Islamic court of law as a, as a witness. It was subjugation. Yes. Right? Did I say that right? Subjugation. Subjugation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Subjective people. <laughs> subjugation. Well, let's check with the adjunct professor. Yeah. Over here <laughs> <and find out. laughs> so, but really I mean, done. there was hundreds of battles and hundreds of cities that had yes. fallen to the oh, yeah. Islamic conquest mm -hmm. over the course of... 300 years really leading up to this. I mean, this was a long, long list, a litany of aggressions that were finally answered um, when it became so much that if the Eastern Empire would fall to the Seljuk Turks, that creates massive problems. And that was kind of, that was the, the bridge too far that the West can no longer handle. Like, look, they've taken and they've destroyed and murdered and demolished their way. But this is... This is the last, this is the straw on the, uh, the, the line in the sand. It can't be crossed, mm -hmm. right? Exactly, yeah. And by the 11th century now, you finally have, uh, you know, Western Europe and Christendom with uh, kind of the, the way that they were, you know, politically situated or politically structured, they can actually finally respond, right? So up until this time, from the death of Muhammad in 632 uh, into, you know, 732, by the time they get into France, actually, uh, you know, two and a half hours southwest of Paris, there's a big battle between an Islamic force and the Franks, which under Charles Martel, Battle of Poitiers in 732. Uh, so over 100 years, they conquer most of this ancient Christian territory. And, and Europe was in the throes of trying to recover from the fall of the collapse of the Roman Empire back in the 5th century. There were a multitude of different, uh, you know, dukes and princes and other noblemen. Uh, there was no, there were kings, but they weren't, you know, as powerful as they later become. So it's finally in the 11th century, towards the end of it, where you do have an opportunity from various European noblemen and secular rulers to be able to respond to this militarily. Now, you brought up Charles Martel. Charles Martel is just a... Chuck Norris. He, he's, he's a Chuck Norris he's of his time. Yeah, yeah he's, that's Charles the Hammer, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's what it is. Martel means yeah. Hammer. Yeah. Chuck yeah. the Hammer. And uh, Chuck the Hammer, Chuck. The uh, time. The the Islamic conquest of Spain and southern France. Mm -hmm. Um, it was very likely that if uh, the Battle of Tours had not went successfully, the entire course of history would have been a Islamic Europe, and. Yeah, there's a couple of decisive battles there, I right. think. Mm -hmm. And you start talking about those medieval kings, and uh, Charlemagne, I think, is the one that really led to the establishment of the first emperor of the West since the fall of Rome, and that he was a descendant of Charles Martel, correct? Yeah, he was the, his grandson. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there is... A, thank God for them. Thank God for the Carolingians and the Merovingians and everyone that led up to that because mm -hmm. it allowed for the... I guess the consolidation of power or at least of influence, you, even even with these medieval kings, they weren't directly ruling everyday life. It was vassal kings and right, dukes yeah, and, right. and duchies, all these things. Yeah. But you had one king that can have a unified political concept to be able to lead these types of crusades. Sure. Yeah, that was and it was. And so, you know, really it was the pope. I mean, it, the, the, who was the one ruler Unifier. Yeah, who could unify all these different disparate secular lords who were mostly concerned about their own territory yeah. or, or acquiring more of it. Uh, so that when something's, you know, kind of uh, supernatural or international, you know, come on, comes to the forefront, he's the one, Urban II, who's able to rally these men and, and motivate them and focus their efforts towards the the liberation, really, of this Christian uh, territory that had been occupied by Islamic forces. And by listening to you, I'm, I'm really getting a larger picture of mm -hmm. the response of love that you were describing mm -hmm. earlier. And a while back, probably about six years ago, I received a gift and it's this, this cross. 
And on the back of the cross, it says, Cruzada de Amor a Jesus Crucificado. And it's the crusade of love of Jesus the crucified. Mm. And with all of this reference to the cross and wearing the cross on, on and the emblems and, you know, I, I, I grew up in a couple of Halloweens. I dressed up as, you know, a crusader. And, and I think when you think of life as pilgrimage and you're getting a spiritual benefit from it, and this whole crusade is one that's rooted in the cross and rooted in love and responsibility, mm-hmm. sometimes we get a little lost in what is love and is this armed resistance or this armed liberation, is it is it love or, or is it something that could be open for criticism? And wasn't clearly the, scholar, the Crusades. Wasn't it the scholar Hathaway who asked what is love? What is love? <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. Oh, don't hurt goodness. me. No more. Now, I noticed that you have a pattern on your tie. Yes. And that is? It's the Jerusalem cross. And that's the same cross that's on my uh, my rosary, which is actually a relic of the Holy Sepulchre, but it's the Jerusalem cross too. Yep. That was the emblem of the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem, which mm-hmm. is the outcome of the first crusade. And explain how the first crusade went. Uh, some of the... Before he does that, I got a tattoo. <laughs> oh, a tattoo oh. from... So this is from a, a tattoo artist... Whose family has been giving Jerusalem is, yeah. tattoos for like yeah. 1,700 years. Yes. It's just crazy. And uh, this was the oldest thing that they would put on. They would put this on mm-hmm. crusaders that were that were there and, and also pilgrims. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty I cool. I mean, that's, that's exactly, you know, you talk about the origin of the word, right? I mean, that's yeah. what people, so if you go back in time, they wouldn't have referred to themselves as crusaders because that's more of a modern word, actually, crusade. But what they would call themselves from the Latin was cruce signate, with those signed, signed with, with the cross. Yes. Because they literally, as you mentioned, Father, they literally took a cloth cross and sewed it onto their garments when they took the vow to go on crusade and they didn't remove it until they had completed their journey. So, Mm -hmm. um, including the first crusaders who went to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the first crusade was quite miraculous. When you read the different reports of what happened during the course of that crusade, so many times that crusade was on the, the precipice of disaster, uh, where the, they had lost all of their food. There was great famine, disease, uh, death, you know, uh, desertions, all kinds of horrible things. But at each of the major critical points when it seems like the crusade is going to just disband and fall apart in disaster, there's something miraculous happens. They're in Antioch mm-hmm. and they're able to get into they're besieging the city. They're finally able to get after months, able to get into the city of Antioch um, one day before a Muslim relief army shows up. Uh, that would have annihilated them outside the gates. So now they're inside the city and protected from the gates. Wow. Uh, they're able to, to you know, uh, morale is low, but in the city they miraculously find the the lance head of St. Longinus, the Roman soldier who had pierced the side of our Lord, um, or at least purported. There are many different accounts of whether that really was yeah. the relic or not, but, you know, uh, it motivated the rank and file to believe that they had found it, and they went out and destroyed this Muslim relief army. They then marched down to Jerusalem, uh, there's only about 12,000 of the 60,000 warriors left at this point because of death and starvation and desertion. They were greatly outnumbered. They were greatly outnumbered throughout the entire campaign, pretty much every battle they fought. Um, yet they continue to win and, and are victorious. And they finally get to Jerusalem in the summer of 1099, and they're able to get into the Holy City uh, on, on July 15th. And they liberate the Holy City of Jerusalem finally. And so that first crusade is the only one that really is fully and 100% kind of successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to revisit what I was saying before, too, because there's a concept that's driven, at least in my experience of catechesis growing up, 
is that God is love mm -hmm. and we draw it with our markers, our crayons, and it's, it's, you know, rainbow and everything's good and happy. Resistance doesn't seem to fit in a sense of love. You know, armed resistance doesn't, you know, is there such thing as a just war? You know, do you stand up to the bully, the oppressor, the oppressing power? And is, is that, is that love? And I'm curious to find out your perspective on, on that. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in certain conditions, right, that are present, especially as the church has understood and developed the just war theory and an understanding of when it would be appropriate to engage in, in kind of, uh, of of armed resistance, right? Uh, and there's, I think there is. I think that that can be an act of love. And these men, these warriors who participated in these campaigns, they saw that this what that's what they were doing was defending Christendom, defending the church, uh, re you know liberating the Christian patrimony of the Holy Land, where Christ had had sanctified that land by his his birth, his death, his his resurrection. Um, and, you know, they thought that they were defending those who were, they believed they were defending those who were being persecuted mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no one, no one would fault the United States for coming to the defense of France in the face of Nazism. Mm -hmm. right. right. There is not much difference of Christian peoples coming to the defense of the Eastern Byzantine Empire in the face of the Islamic invasion. It is not much different, except for the fact that there's the religious element, right. and modernity hates religion, period. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's just an excuse to slander religion, but it's kind of a stupid reason. It just doesn't make a lot of logical sense except for real real bias. Now, you one of the things that you had mentioned was uh, capturing Jerusalem on July 15th. One of the big myths and one of the big slanders is the nature of the conquest of Jerusalem and the brutality that was purported that is not true. Right. Yeah. So that's known as the massacre of Jerusalem right after the, the first crusaders get into the city. Um, and so, I mean, you know, historically speaking, what did happen is, is in medieval time when this is all going on, uh, warfare, the rules of warfare at the time, uh, you know, dictated that if an, uh, an army comes to a city, besieges it, if the city does not surrender, uh, then if the army is able to get into that city, and this happens on Christian, Muslim side, doesn't matter, um, you kind of, there's no holds barred once that army gets into the city. Doesn't, right? doesn't the, typically the commander allow a certain period of plunder as payment usually for the days. troops? Three yeah, days. Usually it's three days. Yeah, yeah. Historically speaking, traditionally it's three days worth of plunder and, and things like that. And that goes back to the Romans and the Greeks oh, goes all and, the, way back, and right. the Hittites even. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you get three days. You get three days to do what you want. You've been on the road for <laughs> on the clock. <laughs> three years. You, on your mark. Get set. <laughs> well, that's, that was their payment. Most of the soldiers of the ancient world, if the mm -hmm. Romans were taken over uh, a Germanic village or somewhere in, in uh, the Celts in, in uh, Britain, Look, we're taking over the city that's been fortified. As payment, you have three days to take whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And that was the payment of the typical rank-and-file mm -hmm. soldier. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there were restrictions Makes placed sense. on that, right? right. I mean, even, yeah. even Alaric, uh, the Goth who sacked the city of Rome in the year 410, I mean, he told his soldiers they could loot everything and take what they wanted to for three days in Rome. They just couldn't touch the Christian churches, and they didn't. Mm -hmm. So they were German, so it was an orderly sack. Right, or yeah. when um, Leo yeah. met Attila, right. he said— well, you can sack the city. You just can't burn down the buildings. You can right. take the. You well, can that, take was, the that was actually Genesaric, the Vandal afterwards. So Attila, Attila actually right. didn't sack the city. He he convinced him not to. Right. But then when a little bit later, when Genesaric came, that's that was the deal. That was that one. Yeah. Okay. But, but He's so the well, see, that's what happens when you're talking with an adjunct professor. You'll never listen so much funny, guys. <laughs> so, but yeah, the myth was so, that the Crusaders, when they when they 
breached the walls of Jerusalem, they killed so many people that people were up to their ankles in blood. Yes. That the whole city streets, there was that much blood. Number one, mm-hmm. biologically, that's not possible. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and they're, they're in a desert, so, I mean... You know, there's some permeability there. <laughs> permeability. <laughs> I mean, Blood soaks into the sand. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean it's, anyways. So what, what is the biology, the, guys? It's biology, biology. yeah. I'm what sorry. is the reality of that conquest and of right. the, the taking of Jerusalem? Well, a couple of things, right? First, uh, historians recognize that there were a good number of people who had left the city beforehand. So estimates vary, but the population of the city at the time was probably anywhere from twenty to 30,000. Um, but many of those had already fled. Uh, so you're talking about there are some civilians left in the city, non-combatants, but mostly they're combatants at this point. Um, and when they get into the city, you know, there's various estimates, but the best study I've seen on this shows that probably about 3,000 or so people were killed in total. That's combatants and non-combatants in the city, um, which is a far cry from, you know, blood running blood up to your ankles, right killing everybody mm-hmm. in the city. Right? Sometimes you still read that in history books today. They killed everyone in the city, men, women, and children. That's not true. Another reason that you'd want to not kill everyone is that in the medieval world, there was a lot of uh, focus on ransom. So you would capture certain peoples or groups of peoples and then ransom them, sell them, you know, for a certain amount of money to get money from their for their freedom. Mm-hmm. So if you killed everybody, that was you're, you're basically uh, eliminating a large source of economic benefit uh, from that. So that just is absurd that they would do that. But part of the reason why this myth persists and why it's even utilized and brought up in the modern world, I mean, even as I mentioned in my in my book on the Crusades, um, President, former President Clinton in November of 2001, right after the September 11th attacks, gave, gives a speech at Georgetown. And he says he can, he's answering the question, why did we why did the United States get attacked on September 11th? And he faults the Crusades and he literally no cites goodness. the massacre of Jerusalem as one of the reasons why Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda attacked the United States, because the memory of this massacre persists in the Arab world, which is complete historical nonsense. Um, but uh, that that myth persists par- primarily because the chronicles of the time, the Christian chronicles, use this imagery. They say, you know, we killed so many people that blood was running up to our ankles, that it was running up to the bridle of our horses. But we in the modern world misunderstand what they were trying to convey by writing that. Mm-hmm. Um, the chronicles of the time are not like we understand uh, war correspondence today, right? You embed somebody from CNN or Fox News into a unit in this Afghanistan like or Iraq. Cross talking about going fishing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. It's, yeah. It's, it's big. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fishing story. But for the cruises, the Christians, when they're writing these chroniclers or chronicles about the event, they're using that imagery because it evokes scriptural imagery, and specifically, it evokes Revelation fourteen twenty, which talks about the angels, you know, uh, exercising judgment on the earth. Mm. So a medieval Christian hearing these chronicles uh, of what happened in Jerusalem and the numbers of people who were killed and the blood up to the ankles would automatically understand and realize that this is symbolic language referring to God's judgment on the unbeliever and God's um, you know, graciousness in the success of the crusade. Yeah. So after the conquest then, what happened? So after the conquest, so most, interestingly enough, most of the those who were still alive uh, at the end, uh, uh, once Jerusalem had been liberated, they leave and go home because fundamentally crusades are pilgrimages. So just like you and I would go on pilgrimage to Rome or you know Jerusalem today, we go, we pray at the shrine, we leave and we go home. That's a pilgrimage. So true for us, true for them. They did the same thing. The vast majority of the warriors leave, those who are still alive, they go back to their homelands. Uh, but some just recognize that they have to stay because they had just liberated this swath of territory, which is about 600 miles all the way up from the city of Edessa down to Jerusalem. 
uh, and they needed to protect it and preserve it. If they just all left en masse, then the Muslims would just come right back in and, and everything would have been for naught, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So many of them, about 2,000 or so, decide to stay, and they create what's known in history as the Crusader States. Mm-hmm. Something They didn't call it that, but we call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were these four different feudal territories from the county of Edessa in the north all the way down to the, to the kingdom of Jerusalem in the south uh, that were feudal territories governed by secular l- rulers. Uh, and the kingdom of Jerusalem was, was governed eventually by a king. Uh, great story. The first ruler of Jerusalem, secular ruler, Christian ruler of Jerusalem after the liberation was Godfrey de Bayon. He was one of the major rulers or, or uh, secular rulers who participated on the campaign. Uh, and he refused to take the title king. He said, I will not. I refuse to wear a crown of gold in the city where my savior wore a crown of thorns. Mm. Refused to take the title. So he mm. just took the title defender of the Holy Sepulcher. <clears throat> now he dies shortly thereafter. Uh, his brother uh, whose name was Baldwin, uh, decides to come down from the county of Edessa, and he's got no problem taking the title king. <laughs> <laughs> so he becomes the first king of Jerusalem. That's like my little brother. But I mean, can you? That's your little brother. <laughs> Casey comes down. Here. Shout out to Casey. Give me that. King Casey. <laughs> Could you imagine the awe and the responsibility of a medieval Christian to be known as the king of Jerusalem? That is, I, I could not imagine the solemnity and the just the gravity of that coronation and that responsibility over that particular was, territory. Probably, it's probably, it's probably never easy, <laughs> you know? Well, it's not, it's king, not easy well, now. King David how easy it was. I mean, yeah. 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 it's not e- easy being huh. king of, you know, my house. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of Jerusalem. In the Middle Ages, right? <laughs> what does uh, the kingdom of Shield look like? It ain't easy being what the king of What does the rule <laughs> look like there? I want you to really express yourself. <laughs> Streets run red with blood. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a brutal dictatorship. <laughs> Kool-Aid. Yeah, Kool-Aid. But, um, so, Baldwin IV, uh, very interesting character. Sure, yeah. Um, how long does that the, the Crusader kingdoms last? So the last territory, the last crusader state that falls, or the last city, I should say, the city of Acre, mm-hmm. uh, falls in the year 1291. So you're ta- and the kingdom of Jerusalem fell before then. So uh, Jerusalem itself was only in Christian control from 1099 to 1187. So 1187 for, would have been Saladin. Yes, that, correct. And right. that's the, this is one of the things that I've always, um, most interesting events in human history to me, it was the Horns of Hetim. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, was that the fourth crusade? Third, right third before the third, before the third, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. The horns of what? So, so do what? Do what? What happened? Okay. So the 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 Christians had went in and they'd established this Crusader state in the mm-hmm. Kingdom of Jerusalem. Um, but it wasn't going to last because they were outnumbered yes. by a lot, mm-hmm. and the Islamic forces would obviously retool, come back, and take this land back. So it was really a zero sum game that they were always pretty much destined to fail because they didn't have access to resources, new troops, um, that they even lasted that long was pretty, pretty intense. But, mm-hmm. um, to me, I think that, I mean, there's been, mul- there's multiple crusades afterwards, but really the idea of, uh, the crusades being a winning proposition proposition ends with that, with, right. uh, Saladin. And yes, in that battle, he actually captured the relic of the true cross, mm-hmm. tied it to his horse, dragged the cross of Jesus from his horse through the sand, and then it disappears from history. Mm. Uh, just an absolutely devastating loss. Um, yeah. Steve, is, is this true? 
Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's true. Thought, <laughs> He's trying to fact check him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, he takes actually. It's it gets back to Damascus. The last known whereabouts of the that large relic of the True Cross was it was in Damascus. He takes wow. it back to Damascus, and then it's it's you know brought through the streets, dragged as a sign of disgrace, right? As a sign of conquest, and mm. then it disappears. It's gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. That's always just been so heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking. Yeah. And the way that that battle went down, they uh, didn't they take the lake and uh, set the lake on fire? Yeah. Yeah. They said they said well, they set various things on fire around. They were actually the Muslims had occupied a higher ground than the Christian army, and so the the, the background to it right was Saladin before the during the time of the first Crusade, there were two different caliphates in the Islamic world. There was the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad and the uh, Fatima Caliphate in Cairo. And so the Muslim world in that part of the area was not united. Uh, but what happens in the late 12th century is Saladin, this great Egyptian general, he, he unifies the two caliphates. Uh, and then once the caliphates are united, then he marshals the large forces now of those that united Muslim uh, caliphate against the Crusader states, and specifically against the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And that's when he conquers the city of Jerusalem in October of 1187. And before that, in July, that you have the big battle of the Horns of Hattin, where, um, you know, this this uh, King Guy was, was king of Jerusalem at the time. He had marshaled the largest army and, and emptied all of the Christian towns and, and all of the different Crusader states to fight, about 12,000 men or so. Uh, and they're just massacred. Uh, in the summer of 1187. And so that that leaves Jerusalem and these other cities open. Uh, there's not a lot of defenders left. And so Saladin comes in and takes over the city again. And it's 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 um, the loss of of Jerusalem will never again be in Christian hands. There'll be terror. There'll be treaties that are enacted, especially at the end of the Third Crusade and later on in the, in the Sixth Crusade, where Christians will have access to the city. Uh, but never again will it be under Christian control. Mm-hmm. So the walls that are around Jerusalem today were put there by Saladin, right? Is that in his? So, um, well, some of them are rebuilt during. Okay. I mean, they've been rebuilt and rebuilt. Yeah, you, have, you have your old walls. And, and the old and, wall. Yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot of layers of walls. Yes. Okay, mm-hmm. but there's still a, there is still a lot of uh, infrastructure built by the Crusaders yep. um, all throughout there through mm-hmm. Acre, Tyre, uh, Sidon. Um, mm-hmm. You there's a lot of Crusader sites there. And a lot of yeah. churches built, yeah. too. Yeah. Churches, yeah. So I, I think the last thing that uh, we can really begin to understand about the Crusades is the involvement of the religious orders, like the Knights Templar, mm-hmm. and what role those religious orders uh, played in the Crusades and into what extent they still exist today. Sure, yeah. So we talked about that a little bit in terms of you know with the creation of these Crusader states, and you mentioned that uh, the, the Christian warriors who had stayed, there weren't enough of them to guard the territories uh, sufficiently. So one of the things that kind of grew out of that situation, this unique situation of a manpower shortage, was the creation of these military religious orders, uh, like the Knights of the Temple or the Templars or the, the Knights of the Hospital of St. John in Jerusalem, the Hospitals. Um, and others, Knights of the Holy Sepulchre, which we talked about mm-hmm. earlier in the beginning of the show. So um, these, this becomes, as one uh, crusade historian has put it, it's, it's, you know, crusading was always a voluntary, temporary activity. It was mm-hmm. something that a man, a warrior, even women would take the cross. You would complete your journey. You would take your cross off your garment. You'd go home, right? Uh, so it was temporary. But the military religious orders became uh, incorporated crusading as a way of life. It became something they permanently vowed to do. To defend the paths of pilgrims. Uh, to defend the paths of pilgrims, to defend <laughs> the crusader states, the, the crusader territory, and specifically to defend pilgrims who were coming still from the West mm. to visit the holy sites mm-hmm. um, from Muslim attack. Because mm-hmm. although, you know, much of the money, that, much of the territory, uh, some of the territory had, had been liberated, it was mostly coastal areas. Right. 
Uh, so once you try to go in road, uh, you know, past that um, little you know buffer, so to speak, of the coastal areas, you were very much in danger. And even the paths and the roads themselves, and because the, yes, yeah, right, not everything was always guarded and one hundred percent all the time, right? So one way in which that that the Christians realized they could protect this territory is to also establish strategic castles all up and long and down the the, the territory of the Crusader states. But again, they didn't have the manpower to staff it. So these military religious orders then were were the unique response to that situation where you could have professed religious warriors who actually took the profession of vows of evangelical councils of past, uh, poverty, chastity, and obedience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of them, some of the orders took additional vows as well of protecting pilgrims or these kinds of things. Uh, and then they would be asked by the king of Jerusalem to go and, and garrison these castles and these strategic areas to protect the territory. Hmm. So one of the things I always thought was very interesting was the actual occupation of the Temple Mount itself. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and I think that, what role did that play in these religious orders? I know that some of them take their name from that. Right. Yeah, the Templars in particular. I mean, they were a guard, a group of warriors who had pledged themselves to service of the pilgrims in the, in the uh, Latin East. And so uh, the king, uh, Baldwin, decided to give them a, a part of the temple enclosure as their barracks. David's stables. And so, yes, exactly. Yep. And so they're, they're garrisoned on the temple. And from that, they take their name, the Knights of the Temple, or, or as they've been more commonly known as the Templars. Yep. Yeah. And then also that the fact that um, the Dome of the Rock was actually a Catholic church. Yes. It was. It was. So during the um, Latin kingdom mm-hmm. of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount that we know today, the Gold Dome yeah. in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. was a Catholic church and was known as the Templar Domini. It was right. the Temple of God. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that was on the site of the Second <coughs> Temple, on the site of... Uh, the Alaska Mosque is yeah. close to there right. and, and yeah. the enclosure. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So again, I think that's a really interesting period of time that this iconic building that is so associated with the uh, Islamic faith was actually a Catholic church. Um, And people say, well, that's maybe a little bit insensitive to think that that's a good thing. But I mean, all you have to do is look at the Hagia Sophia and Mm -hmm. they're they're in no rush to give that back to us. So that's the nature of, uh, I guess... And this what happened actually all throughout, to interrupt you, but I mean, that, that happened throughout most of this Islamic occupied territory that had been Christian. Right. Uh, you know, Muslims, I mean, they were, the Arabs initially were a group of people that were very nomadic, uh, you know, and they weren't uh, as schooled or as proficient in architecture and art and things as the Byzantines were and Christians and Jews living in these areas. And so once they conquered these territories, they actually utilized the the Jews and Christians living in them to to build things for them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the Dome on the Rock was, was I mean, that church or that big structure was was built by Byzantine craftsmen and by architects. Uh, you know, in Spain, for example, you know, there were very few indigenous or very few, um, you know, Muslim created buildings. They actually took buildings that had been built by Christians and then repurposed them into mosques. Mm-hmm. So many of the mosques, the ancient mosques that are in Spain that are always celebrated, <coughs> the Mosque of Cordoba, these yep. kinds of things, are all Christian buildings that, that the Muslim occupiers repurposed. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, I think a lot of that still continues to be a source of strife to this day. Um, yeah. But that's that's the nature. I mean, you'll see that same kind of concept with how do you rectify past injustices hundreds of years into the future. Mm-hmm. How do you uh, look at the situation of the Native Americans in, in the United States? How do you look at the uh, the rights of the Jewish people in, you know, in uh, versus Palestine? How do you look at the rights of 
Greek Catholics or I'm sorry, Greek Orthodox in Anatolia, who that for by far the vast preponderance of history, that was their territory. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there was any sort of justice, I mean, people would be saying, well, give this back to them. But that's not the reality. Mm-hmm. And when you look at countless years and centuries of, of, you know, that lasting memory of the injustice that's rooted all throughout Europe, all throughout Eastern Europe, all throughout the Middle East, for us as Americans, we don't have that long sense of history. We don't have a historical consciousness that we continue to draw on in respect to the in, in, injustice. So it's hard for us to come in contact with that, I think, mm-hmm. even in a, in, you know, in, in, as a product of a philosophical system that, you know, is just really progressive and, and industrial. And, and what are we doing mm-hmm. tomorrow and really, you know, not have that much interest in what has happened in the past? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's important to realize that this historical treatment is an important historical treatment of who we are as an identity as Catholics and and who we are still today as men and women of the great pilgrimage of the cross, that we are marked with that same cross and commissioned. Though the cross of Jesus Christ could be brought up to Damascus and lost to history and and drugged very irreverently and and you know defaming it. But the cross is still very much intimately a part of what we do today as Catholics and what we're called to do. And we need to draw from the historical semblance of what you're sharing with us. So it's very important. Thank you so much for sharing all these insights. Yeah. Crusaders have been the Crusades have been throughout history completely maligned and misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And in today's world, Crusaders are looked at as really the antithesis of what a modern person should be. Mm-hmm. But I think Western society would do itself a great service by reevaluating the legacy of the Crusaders and understand what they did fundamentally to preserve our culture that was of great worth and of heroic nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very well true. said. And I think when it comes to being a crusader of today, being with us on this show, the Catholic Talk Show, is a great contribution to us. And we're going to open up a whole nother Patreon tier for the Crusaders. Oh, yeah. And we're gonna we're gonna send you guys a patch of the cross of Jerusalem. There you go. That's it. That's pretty neat. You know, did you I just make that up? I did just make that okay. up. Okay. Should, should it be cloth right. or could it be a sticker? I think it needs to be a cloth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay, we'll do a patch. patch. Yeah. Definitely want to You know, patch, really right. draw on that sense of, of what was done and, and maybe okay, evoke we'll make, some sentiment We'll make there. that happen. Yeah. 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 You know, the, my, my, uh, the thing that I found at you, Catholic, has always used the uh, a Crusader cross as its symbol. Um, so something that I think that Christians really... Need to understand in the context of their life that you are always on crusade and that you always are. It's not crusade does not need to be only taken as a armed aggression or even an armed defense. Crusade really is the way of being marked with the cross. Mm -hmm. And that is everybody indelibly marked with the cross. But speaking of aggression and crusade. Inquisition is coming, and I'm hoping that it's leaning to the other side of the table today, <laughs> and we get to draw our good doctor in for a uh, you know an Inquisition. Before <laughs> before we do that, should we uh, yeah, tell I'll, everybody about? I'll our, do that. I'll take care of that. Okay. Now, see, you would think that having a guest and an esteemed guest and a very learned man, <laughs> that I would want to test his knowledge and put him on the spot. Oh. But that's not as fun. It's not as fun. You would get smoked. But I don't think we're I don't think that's we're what gonna, he's afraid of. Uh, I don't think we're gonna do it in such a violent way. But no, I do want to good. know that you you, father, with your well manicured soap opera beard and 
and your asthma and your soft knees <laughs> <laughs> and, and your need for comfortable beds and 30 minute showers. <laughs> Too much. Yeah, I know. If the Pope yeah. called a crusade today. Yes. And the crusade was for the liberation of some people. Would you respond? And do you think that it's still even a feasible thing in the future that the Pope could call a crusade uh, for the, I guess, the reconquest of certain lands? So can I put conditions on it? Like, could I take my 30-minute shower? Or <laughs> can I still manicure my beard on crusade? Or do I have to go wild, man? Well, I think the practicalities of being on crusade would dictate that. <laughs> I mean, and it's supposed to be penitential, too. Yeah. Crusade, so, yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 mean, I guess the question is, do crusades have any place in the future or in, in present? Crusade, so. crusade is today. That, it, it is today and it every is day's day. Vault. Let's take Jerusalem. Day's vault. It's, it's God's will. And Constantinople first. Is God's no, will. Okay. To, for our lives to be conformed to the mystery of the cross. That's the whole sense of our identity as Catholics and our baptism. The nature of our baptism is that our lives are being conformed to Christ, conformed to the cross. And that is the response to death. Because from the cross, from that great altar of offering of the person of Jesus Christ, he is the firstborn of the dead. So, yes, the crusade is still very much alive, and I am marked with it. And, and I must be a crusader in the pilgrimage of today and continue to pass on the, the love of Jesus the crucified. And, and take so, long showers. Yeah. 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 And plus, I'm doing the whole Good Exodus answer. 90 thing, right. so cold oh, showers you are, you know, yeah. so, yeah. they're quick. Yeah, so for our <laughs> listeners, Exodus 90 is one of our uh, sponsors of our show. Exodus 90 is a 90-day program for men that helps you to establish ascetical practices, uh, get fraternity with other Catholic men. It allows you to grow in your prayer life. And it's a way to, I guess, go and crusade against your own body and your own, uh, I guess, the failings that you have to help make yourself a more uh, useful, strong, virile, and the kind of man that the church needs in the modern crusades, yeah. which is really for the souls and the hearts of families mm -hmm. and for, for culture. Mm -hmm. yeah. That is where the yeah. crusades of the 21st century are going to be fought are in, in the family and in society, and Exodus 90 really is a, a training program and regimen to make men uh, very qualified to do that. So go to Exodus 90. It's a free app. Um, you can start on any of the Exoduses they have at any time. They have Exoduses multiple times a year. It's, like, really popular, too. It just it's, keeps growing. There's more and more people I hear that are doing it that um, it just bursted on the scene, you know, and, mm -hmm. uh, and it's great. It just shows you the anointing of how fasting is, is something that God wants, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. he wants that intimacy with us. And so Boom. You see a lot of Boom. he already yeah, pulled yeah, it really up on cool. the app. I do. Yep. Uh, and then, um, I want to give a shout out to our other sponsor, covenant eyes, uh, go to CovenantEyes.com and put in the code Catholic talk and you get a 30 day free trial for covenant eyes. Covenant eyes is a, an accountability software that helps men and women overcome addiction and struggles with pornography. Uh, it's a really unique software and program that doesn't rely on necessarily filtering your phone because everyone would find ways around a filter. You just go find another device. But this gives accountability and a real desire to overcome, again, one of the major struggles of the modern Christian pornography. And one of the things that really is cutting at our hearts and uh, Exodus, I'm sorry, Covenant Eyes is a, a program that really is doing doing that and preparing people and putting them in a place where they can overcome 
their battles with pornography. So go to CovenantEyes.com and use the promo code Catholic Talk, and you get 30 days free and try it out. Yeah, I'm really grateful we have support, uh, not only from our Patreons, um, but also from our, our advertisers. We're really grateful. Yeah, we wouldn't take just any sponsor. These are right. programs that we actually truly believe in. We've yeah. worked with for years. We work yes. with them on a deep, personal level. Yeah. This is not... Uh, this is not shilling. You know, this is really us. Zip recruiter. Yeah. <laughs> Go to ZipRecruiter.com right now. Every podcast. Yeah, it's Every ridiculous. single podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but, but yeah, I mean, it's like bringing Steve here. Um, by the way, Steve's got a book. Did it just come out? It's, it came out in January. This Great. Year. All right. came out in January. Timeless, A History of the Catholic Church. Where can I find that? Uh, you can. It's published by Our Sunday Visitor, so uh, you go to their website, Our Sunday Visitor, Our Sunday Visitor okay. or Amazon carries it as well, or any good Catholic bookstore near you. Timeless, awesome. a history of the Catholic Church, and he has a lot of other books you can go find too. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. go check them out. I mean, I think we only scratched the surface of the knowledge that you could provide. Yeah. But we really, yeah. really appreciate you coming in and thank you, uh, yeah. giving a little bit of uh, intelligentsia and some mm-hmm. class to this <laughs> ragtag <laughs> needed group of people. Yeah, people. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, yeah. we need it. It's great. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you so you, much man. for having me on the show. Yeah. I appreciate it very and much. And many blessings to Christendom and thank the you. ministry that God has entrusted you with. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. God bless. Yeah. All thank right. You. Thank you. And thank you for joining us at the Catholic Talk Show. We'll see you next week.